Here at Doxedo Hatfield, we are a family on mission. Make sure to get connected by joining us at one of our Sunday services. We hope you enjoyed today's message. But you can take out your Bible with me to the book of Acts. If you're new with us, we were just taking a quick break. We've been preaching through the book of Acts now, and we took a quick break to speak about exhibiting his glory, and now we're going to pick up the story again. We'll probably kind of pause and go, pause and go as we go through this incredible story. The doctor, Luke, he was one of the early followers of Jesus, and he writes this two-volume work, the gospel according to Luke, and then the follow-up to that, Godfather part two, he writes this incredible book called the book of Acts that tells the incredible story of the early church. And just a few forgot now over the last three weeks where we were prior to that, we ended that last Sunday with the day of Pentecost. We spoke about not a church building being filled to the brim, but a people filled to the brim with the Holy Spirit. And what does that look like? If we want to see faith and love and hope, if we want to see that brought to our city, we need people filled with the Holy Spirit. And God showed up in a huge way on that day for the early church. And we're going to pick up what happened literally right after that event. So one of the things that's puzzled secular historians for hundreds of years now is how is it that the early church, how did the Christian movement happen? How did it boom like it did? There are many religious movements and and many religions of the world, but this one had this almost atomic level growth just suddenly happen. And what was the reason for it? Because the group of young people, basically, that Jesus left behind, they were were not a whole bunch of them. They were not influential. They were a bunch of blue-collar, uneducated, basically, men and women. And the reality is that Christianity did not advance by conquest, as many global religions did. For the first 400 years, that's basically almost the age of South Africa at this point, not a single sword was lifted in defense of Christianity. So it wasn't a military advance. Um, And second, it didn't make the followers of Jesus rich. I mean, they literally had the opposite. Most of them lost their homes and their lives in defense of this message of Jesus. So what was the reason? Because even though all those things are true, yet we see that the Christian movement, this community that, that started around Jesus, the world had never seen anything like this before. And on that scale, the world has never seen something like it since. Because this group were known as peacemakers and peacekeepers. Many other religious groups at that stage were being persecuted, but it was only the Christians who said, we will not fight back. We will in fact pray for and bless those who are persecuting us. Hundreds of stories of Christians willfully and gladly going to their death for this man, Jesus And they were also welcoming the outcasts. This was the very first and greatest ever on the history of our planet, the first ever multi-ethnic movement, multicultural movement. They literally welcomed people from all ages and backgrounds. They said that all people, Jew and Greek, slave and free, male, female, they are all equal in the eyes of God. That was scandalous in the ancient world. And they were generous. They were so generous, it was scary. We spoke about it a couple of weeks ago. The Emperor Julian in the 4th century saying, these Christians are making me crazy because they are looking not after their own poor only, they are looking after everyone's poor. Why are they doing this? So what was it that led to this? How could this happen? It's never happened before. It hasn't happened in this way since. And so... Kenneth Scott Lauderay, he's a professor at Yale University. History is his field. 
So he's not a religious man. But he says this. He says, the more one examines the various factors which seem to account for the extraordinary victory of Christianity, the more one is driven to search for a cause underlying them all. It's clear that at the very beginning of Christianity, something must have occurred. A vast release of energy that was virtually unequaled in history. Nothing else can explain the surge of the early Christian movement. So this Yale historian says, I'm wrestling with this. How, how does this happen? Some unequaled burst of energy took place 2,000 years ago. And this thing was launched like a rocket into all of the world. And what is that thing? I want to show us today, just after the Holy Spirit has poured out Peter, foot in his mouth Peter, his life is starting to change through the Holy Spirit. And he gets up and he preaches basically the first sermon that we have in the book of Acts. It's not the only sermon. There's a whole bunch of angles to the good news of Jesus. This is just one of them. But this one little moment so ignites what the Holy Spirit was doing. We see, and we're going to speak about it next week, about baptism and what the response was like. 3,000 people say, yes, Jesus. And what happened there? Why did that happen? I want us to look at that for a second. So you can open up your Bible to Acts 2, verse 14. Now, just to say, for the sake of time, especially today, I'm not going to go through the whole thing. It's basically verse 14 to, I think, 40. But for the sake of time, I'm going to start in verse 22. And basically, after Peter, he gets up and he starts explaining this incredible thing you just saw happening. The Holy Spirit poured out. Everyone starts to speak in languages that's not their own. All these different nations are hearing the good news of Jesus spoken in their own language. And he starts explaining to them, this is the promise of God that he made. That his word and his work would go out to all nations. It's a representation of that. And then right after that explanation, he basically says the following. Verse 22. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him. Just as you yourselves know, he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. You used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. Verse 32, God has raised this Jesus and we are all witnesses of this. And therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and he's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. Verse 36. Therefore, let all of the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Some of your translations will say cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. As many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this crooked generation. Hectic stuff. Peter, once the laughing stock of the disciples, God is starting to do something. God is a calling upon your life. And Peter is the testimony of it. But I think the most 
impactful moment for me in this whole mini sermon is this moment where these people, it says what? They were cut. They were pierced to the heart. It fell to them as he was speaking. When I read this again, it felt like my, the day that I met Jesus, the end of my matric year. I literally, as this, as this pastor was speaking at this camp, I literally felt this emotion, like something was breaking into my chest. It was literally messing me around. It was like, it was jumbling up all my innards. And it was like I was having open heart surgery for the first time in my life. And that's exactly what's happening here. They say we were pierced to the heart. When Jesus promised in John 16 verse 8, he said, when the Holy Spirit comes to this earth, he would convict the world of sin, of going away from the glory and the plan and the will of God. It uses this word convictia, which is the Greek word elenko, and it basically means to cross-examine. So imagine a lawyer sitting down with someone who's been caught red-handed. And so what they're doing in that cross-examination in the courtroom is they are trying to heap up all the evidence. And eventually, you know, we're watching this Netflix uh, documentary at the moment, or it's like a mockumentary, I guess, of the Unabomber's life. Um, and it's so incredible. Sam Worthington is in this thing. And there's a moment where he's trying to convince the Unabomber, we've got mountains of evidence against you. You have no chance. We've literally, we're going to overwhelm you with evidence. That's what the Holy Spirit comes and he does. I'm living my life. I'm living for myself. I'm the captain of my own soul. And the Holy Spirit comes and he says, I have mountains of evidence of this Jesus. And there's a moment where it becomes so much, the glory of God, the truth, the grace is so much. It literally feels like my chest is being broken open. My heart is exposed. And I say, what must I do? I can't take this anymore. That's what the Holy Spirit does. So if we want to know what was this rocket fuel, what was this burst of energy the historian speaks about in this moment, we have to ask two quick questions. Number one, what was it that cut them to the heart? And secondly, how did they respond? What was this thing that cut them so deeply to the heart? And secondly, how did they respond? So let's look at that first one. What was it that actually cut them so deeply to their hearts? And I can even ask this right at the beginning. Has that happened to you? Has that happened to you? Not has that happened to your parents. There are no grandchildren in the kingdom. Not has this happened in your family. Not is this the tradition of your family. Not have you, you know, started to, to pick up your morals. You know, I, I've been living a bit of a wild life, but I'm trying harder. No, have you experienced the deep cut to the heart of the good news of Jesus? And Peter, in this moment, he says two things. <laughs> that is like the sharp sword in the hearts of the people. So freeing. The first thing is there was two realizations. The first is they realized that they had been wrong about Jesus. They had been wrong about Jesus. You see, in Jesus' day, there were all these opinions about Jesus. Some said, you know, he is going to be this great political leader. He's going to get us out under the thumb of the Roman Empire. Some said, no, he is this prophet. He's going to bring us back to, to pure Judaism. To serve God purely. And some said, he's a kook. <laughs> this guy is off his rocker. I mean, he's like some charismatic magician. You know, some of the guys we often see on the TV. And, you know, it's just the bank details just at the bottom all the time. You know, he's just fooling the people. That's who he is. But the beautiful thing is Jesus would not conform to any of those opinions. He would not conform to them because he literally claimed in a very Jewish way to be God. I mean, he went around and forgave people's sins. Imagine that. Like I go after the service and I punch Shaul right in the face for no reason. And someone else walks past, Johan walks past and he says, Joe, you are forgiven. I mean, 
like Charles would be like, no, that's not how it works. Like, I have to forgive. Jesus, never mind the healings and the miracles and the nature, he forgave people of their sins. And the Jewish people knew that's blasphemy. That's stronger than saying, I'm God. The people tore literally their clothes and their hair when they heard Jesus doing that. He forgave people's sins. He let people worship him. Imagine that. People fell at times before his feet and he didn't reject it. He said, that's proper. That's good. This is what we were made to do. And he said, if you don't do it, the rocks and the trees are going to do it. That was Jesus. And he claimed to be on this rescue mission. The kingdom of God is going to redeem this world. It's going to redeem the hearts of the people. And the people said, Jesus, listen, you're a nice guy, but you've got to stop this God talk. You're going to get yourself killed. And what did he do? He just went right ahead and they killed him. And so Peter says, you know what? All these opinions and Jesus, but you know what happened? In the resurrection, in his sermon, he says, God overturned all those opinions. God comes and he redeems Jesus. He redeems the message. He overturns the expectations and he says, yes, he is the son of God. He's not a good man. He's not a teacher. He's not just the moral example. He is the son of God. So Peter uses these words in verse 36. Highlight these two in your Bible because this is so crucial. We don't understand in Christianity unless we understand the tension of these two words. He says in verse 36, he is Lord, which means God. He's not just the prophet, friends. I have a fundamental disagreement with my Muslim brother. He is not just a prophet. He's Lord, he says. He's the creator of the universe. And he says more than that, he is the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's not just one among many options to the mountaintop. He's the truth. That's strong. If people say, Christian, you're so close-minded. You know, you, you all have this arrogant idea that you have the truth. I don't have the truth. Jesus says he's the truth. I'm just putting all my chips into this man. Because when I hear him, when I see him, when I experience him, man, I am cut to the heart. It's not religion. It's not church, friends. It's not trying to be good people. It's saying yes to this man. That's who he was. And Peter nails it in the sermon when he says that was his main point. His PowerPoint just went like whoop when this moment happened. I don't even have one today. But he had like this, the sparks were flying when he said this. He said, if Jesus was resurrected by God, then what we think about him is less important than what he says about himself. If that's true, no other argument. Don't come to me with science or creation. Don't come to me with this or that. Don't come to me with anything. If this is true, all the dominoes fall. That's what Peter says. So this morning, it's like, you know, something added. So we're driving, we're listening to, if you know who Jordan Peterson is, he's this, this Canadian psychologist. He's a secular man. And he's been, over the last couple of years, his, his book, 12 Rules for Life, it's been, I think, on the Amazon wish list or the top, you know, selling list for almost 132 weeks or something like that. And he's a man who believes so deeply that something about this Jesus thing, this religion thing, this Christian thing, there's something so deeply true about it, but he can't get himself to just go over that line. So he was doing these biblical lectures as a psychologist, secular psychologist. And he's, he's had, I think, close to a billion views, thousands, auditoriums in those secular countries in the world, filling up 3,000 people, day, night by night by night, listening to him speaking about the Bible, Genesis and Exodus, these stories in the Bible, young men who say, I don't believe in this religious stuff, but I want to hear what this man has to say about the Bible. 
because there's something true to it. And we're listening to this, this podcast this morning as he's saying, I'm at this point where I am wrestling big time because my issue is, if this is true, there is no limit to what God can do through your life. He can ask you anything. He can send you anywhere. He can raise you up to do anything. If Jesus is who he says he is, he says it's, it's game over. And he has this argument to the church. He says, listen, I look at the church as a secular man. And I look at you guys and I have this accusation. You are telling me that you believe that this man is the son of God. And yet this is how you like milk toast live in the world. It doesn't make sense. You can hear a man wrestling with the question. It's not a question. We can go to the university and get so many of the questions answered. But there's the question. And that is, has this man been resurrected from the dead? Because if that's true, it's game over. It's all of it. That's what Peter says. That's the question. And you see the people wrestling that day. They say, I'm cut to the heart. You have me in a corner. The, the evidence is overwhelming to them. Why? Because they were the people who could say, no, no, no. Guys, that guy's is crazy. I'm there. This is the same city. This is two months after the resurrection, after the death of Jesus, in the very city that he was killed. So you've got 3,000 people that know the very people that they are speaking about who can just stand up and say, guys, let me just take you to the graveside really quickly. Let me just take you to the tomb. This guy's a quack. But no one can say anything. They cut to the heart. And they know it's not some mass hallucination. These guys were so hyped up on the Jesus juice that they were just seeing a man walking around doing some crazy things. Why? Because Paul's going to say to us, and probably the oldest text in the New Testament, he's going to say that 500 people at one stage see Jesus simultaneously. And these people know for a fact, you don't hallucinate 500 people together at the same time. You've got to have very strong stuff, friends, to do that. <laughs> so, but he concocted very carefully. All of us are saying the same thing at the moment. They know it. The evidence is growing. It's becoming overwhelming, actually. The, the conviction of this Jesus, of the kingdom, of the grace, of the truth, of God doing something. But even more, they can't dismiss them as liars. Because are they getting rich from this? Are they, you know, are they, are they living the life because of Jesus? No, they are getting killed because of it. They are literally going to the grave, to the very death. Peter is, according to church history, he is literally crucified upside down on a cross. People are getting cut in half. They're being fed to animals. And the last thing that they say before they die is that man is God. I've seen him. I've experienced him. I cannot keep quiet. The people were not more brave in that time. They saw Jesus. They said, that's the truth. And Peter just leaves at their friends if this is true. So what's the conclusion that the people have? We wanted Jesus to be one thing, but I'm beginning to realize He's something completely different. I'm cut to the heart. And my question to you is, have you been? Have you been cut to the heart? I'm not asking you if you've been baptized. I'm not asking if you have a religious background. I'm not asking you if you have a desperate need just to be a more moral person. I'm asking you if you have had that emotion in your soul. Because the second thing, they had a realization, not that they were just wrong about Jesus, but that they were responsible for the death of Jesus. That's heavy, friends. 
I'm sorry, if it's, if it's like heavy this morning, we're preaching from the Bible, friends, so this is where the Bible is, so it's heavy, I'm sorry. They realized they were responsible for the death of Jesus. A couple of times in this sermon, Peter was not, he was taking names, friends, he was busting caps this morning. He was saying, verse 23, 36, he says, whom crucified Jesus? You did. How's that for like a, like a rallying cry? You're going to build a successful ministry. Hey guys, good morning. You killed Jesus. That's what he's saying. He said, God came to this earth and you killed him. Peter points it out and he says to the crowd, you killed him. Now, this verse has been used for many, many years, unfortunately, by certain people to almost have an anti-Semitic, an anti-Jewish message to say, yeah, it was the Jewish people who killed Jesus. But that's not the point. If you're saying that, you're missing the whole story. Because number one, when Peter says you killed him, he's speaking firstly, he's speaking globally. He's speaking to everyone at that moment. He says, I mean, he knows there's like a couple of thousand people before him in this moment. He knows, obviously, that not all of those people were personally involved in the actual, you know, crucifixion and torture of Jesus. And yet he says to all of them, you killed Jesus. Verse 39, he says, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord will call. So this was not about a particular group of Jewish people in Jerusalem. It was about all people. It's about you and me. Peter is saying to us this morning, you killed Jesus. But secondly, when he said you killed Jesus, he wasn't just speaking globally. He was speaking deeply personally. Peter was speaking to himself. He was speaking to himself. You know, when that evening where Peter, if you know the story, you can go and read it in Luke. When he denied Jesus three times. There's a moment that Luke, the doctor, so meticulous in his research, he goes and he records this little detail for us. Luke 22, 61, it says, then at that moment, after the third time that Peter says, I don't know this man. I don't know who this guy is. I'm not going to get sucked up into all this, you know, it's this massive riot. People are going to get killed. I am now out of this Jesus thing. For the third time, he denies Jesus. And then this happens. It says in verse 61, then the Lord turned Jesus and looked at Peter. So Peter remembered the word of the Lord. How he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Verse 62, and he went outside and he wept bitterly. Peter was cut to the heart because Jesus looked right at him. And in that moment, you can imagine Jesus' face was a pulp of bruises and scars. He was swollen. He was destroyed. He was unrecognizable almost as a human being. And Peter realizes in that moment, that's my betrayal. That's me. And he was cut to the heart. And the people listening to Peter in his sermon, they come to exactly the same conclusion. They realize this man was cut for my life, for my transgressions. I have worshipped myself. And God has come to rescue me. See, I have to come to a place We don't linger there, but I have to come to a place where I realize this is my sin. This is not, you know, I had an oopsie, you know, bad season of my life, you know, doing better now. Hashtag 2021, got, you know, goals, going to do better. No, this is the deep realization. It wasn't a mistake. It was an absolute worship of self. And it put this man, God, man, Jesus on the cross. I have to see Jesus like Peter literally looking at me. 
I have to see his face. And I have to realize this is, this, this is my rebellion against God. This is me saying, no, 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 I'm the captain of my soul. No, no, I define good and evil. I live my life. These are my rules. This is my reality. I have to see that. Because before that, I, before I'm cut to the heart by the Spirit, I probably think that this is all about breaking the rules of God. You know, this is religion. Not allowed to do this. Don't have sex. Don't swear. Don't, don't, just don't drink or whatever. Don't break the rules of God. That's how we think. But when I'm truly cut to that, I realize it's not about breaking the rules of God. I've broken the heart of God. I've broken the heart of God on this earth. And it's me. I have to come to the place where I see him in that place. He's the loving father coming to his rebellious children. And he's saying, even if you resist me, then I will give my life for you. If you resist me to the point of death, then I will go beyond the point of death to fetch you, to heal you, to redeem you. We resisted him and he wouldn't be resisted, so he was killed. And it's this realization that I'm asking you, has this happened to you that you see Jesus on the cross and you see this is me? This is my doing. You know, I remember growing up and thinking of myself as a good person. I'm a good guy. I'm much better than the guy next to me, for sure. So whatever happens at the end, you know, when we have to cash out the end of life, I'll be probably okay. Because I saw myself fundamentally as just a good person who makes some boo-boos now and then. But it's only when I come to the deep realization that, no, this is the brokenness of the Son of Man. It's me. That's the day that something slipped into my soul saying, no, I'm cut to the heart. And I had to come not just before the throne of God, the King. I had to come before the cross of God, the Savior. So this is what cut them to the heart, but this is the important thing for this morning. So what did they do? What did they do when they heard this? I started just running away because I think the heaviness of this just dawning upon you, I would just run away. Saying, guys, I'm out. I'm going to Starbucks. Whoever's joining me there, this pizza thing, it's way too heavy for me. Here's what they did. First up, they sought forgiveness. They sought forgiveness from the cross. Verse 38, Peter replies, repent and be baptized, each of you. What? In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Yes, it's true, but there's something more true. The cross is not the end. It's the start of the conversation. Come and find your life in this man, Jesus. And I would say, isn't this strange? The cross of Jesus, Paul says, or Peter says, is where you killed God. And now he's saying, so come to the cross to find forgiveness from God. But that is the beautiful irony. It's the, it's the miraculous irony that Peter says the angels long to look into the gospel. They've never experienced that. They've never experienced the grace of God in this way. So they have eternally been trying to understand the grace of God. Because the great irony and the beauty of the cross is that, yes, God took the most heinous crime in the universe and turned it into our grace. He said, here where you kill my son, I will bring your forgiveness and your redemption. In this very place, Titus 2.14 says, he gave himself to redeem us from lawlessness, to cleanse us 
for his own possession, a people eager to do good works. I can only start bringing faith and love and hope to the city when I've deeply experienced the forgiveness, the freedom of God. Peter was not, friends, the only disciple who betrayed Jesus. Do you know that? Judas also betrayed Jesus. And here's the point. If you are only convicted of sin, that's just religion. You have to be convicted of the grace and the forgiveness and the love of Jesus. Then life starts. Because guess what? Peter betrayed Jesus, but he was cut to the heart by the love and the grace of this man. But Judas betrayed Jesus, and he was so wracked by guilt. It was only that side. I have betrayed the Son of Man. That what did he do? He hung himself. He killed himself out of guilt. He was convicted of sin, but he was not convicted of the grace of God. Have you been convicted of this? God, there is not just forgiveness. There's not just waiting for heaven. There is life to the full in Jesus. Do you hear the voice of the Father saying, come back to me? I've called you home. I've, in fact, come to your home to call you home. I'm not waiting for you on the porch. I've come to fetch you. Romans says, even while we were still sinners, God died for us. Just end with this. I'll last two points. Cheers. Not enough time today. This is an incredible story of a father in Philadelphia in America, and his son, strained relationship. His son runs away, does his thing, very like prodigal son-ish. You know, the pigs and the drugs and the girls and the, all the whole thing. And this father eventually is so desperate that he writes in, in the newspaper, the local newspaper, he writes a letter to his son. And he just says this. He says, John, all is forgiven. Come back to me, Dad. And he adds a phone number. And you know what happened? Hundreds of calls started coming in of young men thinking this is their father speaking to them. Why? Because each of us sitting here have this deep, deep need to hear from our father. I love you. I forgive you. I've given myself for you. Come home. Don't walk out here today. Go and look for in a business, in a bottle, in a bed. You're not going to find it. Come home. Have you heard that voice from the cross? Has it cut you to the heart? And have you said, Jesus, I don't want some of you. I don't want a bit of you. I want all of you. I want to fall down before you as king and Savior. Can we just close our eyes as we pray? What was this absolute unmatched burst of energy? It was the grace of Jesus on the cross. And the world has never been the same again. And as Dr. Day, we have a heart to address spiritual lostness and social pain and systemic brokenness in our city. We want to bring faith and love and hope. But city transformation starts with heart transformation. And I'm going to ask you today, not have you tried religion, not have you desperately 
attempted to be a better person. But have you come to fall down on your knees in joy before the cross of Jesus? And if not, I had to do that somewhere in my life. And I said, God, I'm leaving behind religion and rebellion. I'm now taking up who you are in faith. And I just want to pray with you today. I can't pray for you. can't do this for you. But the Father is calling. He's saying, come home. And if you've never done that, I believe that God wants to today. He wants to not just cut you to the heart. He wants to heal your heart. And so can I just ask, if that's you today, if you say, I want to give my whole self to all that Jesus is, I want to experience that today. Can you just raise your hand just for a second? Amen. Just raise your hand. I just want to pray with you. It's beautiful. Peter says, what must we do? And he says, repent. Change your mind and your soul and your heart to be in agreement with the truth of Jesus. Can I pray with you guys? You can drop your hand if that's fine. Jesus knows exactly who you are. He knows you to your very core. He knows more about you than you will ever know about yourself. And he says, I love you. I've given myself for you. And I want to restore you. I want to redeem you. So I want to pray, Jesus, this morning, as you once again, as you have been doing for 2,000 years, as you bring new life, I just pray, God, that we would with full faith accept it. Accept the grace of Jesus. Accept the gift of Jesus. I pray that you would be more to them than anything else. That you would be Savior and Lord. And may they today, God, experience something so deep in their hearts that their lives would never be the same. Never be the same. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. How's your heart feeling? How's your heart feeling? Friends, we have a calling upon our lives. And it's not to be good people. It's not to come to church. But it's to be cut to the heart with this good news. To say, now my life is going to be like a rocket for this man, Jesus. And we're going to take faith and love and hope into this city because of who he is, Savior and King. Amen. Amen.